citizens of the world, humans of Earth, welcome to This Week in Mormons. It's a pleasure to be with you this week. Thank you for taking the time to tune in to our wee little podcast and uh, so we can get the best in Latter-day Saint news to you, delivered right to you, orally, as we say, A-U-R-A-L-L-A, not O-R, not that way. Though I'm an order of courts. What are you laughing at, Devin? What are you laughing at? I cannot say. I cannot say. I've done this 530 times and I have to mix it up. I mean, I should just say, I should do it. I should do it like Ira Glass style. Is this week in Mormons? <laughs> well, um, and just start it like that. <laughs> I, I wish I could do that. Uh, I, Are you not entertained, I, people? That is what I, I'm here I'm entertained. That. So everyone must be entertained because I'm very hard to please. Uh, but you're a funny guy. You're a funny guy, Chad. Everybody, for some reason, that made me think of the Bob Dylan song when he says, everybody must get stoned. I don't know why. <laughs> Which, officially, that song is not about marijuana because of standards and practices at the time, but it's about, it's about that's, that's what it's about. That's what it's about. Uh, I love you, Jeff. Sorry to break. Thanks for having me on. When I, This is Devin Thorpe, everybody. Um, when I was a kid on that subject, I was convinced that like, famous musicians were too, I don't know, too smart to do drugs or something like that. I remember someone said like Tom Petty. I love, I've always loved Tom Petty ever since I was a kid. They're like, you know, yeah, Tom Petty, like Mary Jane's Last Dance. I was like, that song's not about that. He wouldn't do that. <laughs> That's not him. I was deeply in denial about drug abuse uh, amongst famous musicians. Yeah. yeah. So. Yeah. That's interesting. I've grown up. What can I say? What can I say? I grew up, I became a musician myself. I saw the things that happened in clubs at, at venues and such. And I said, okay, it's a dark seedy world. I should go on a mission. Yeah. Be yeah. Cool. One of these times we, we, you just need to jam and I will just cheer while you jam on your guitar or sing or something. Yes. Who here among you wishes to hear me perform 20 year old, you know, emo poppy type music on an acoustic guitar. I mean, I could plug in my electric guitar right now and we could really, yeah, we just, should do that. Sure. That's what the people that's, came here for. That'll be on. Yeah. A week. What I want to hear is I want to hear you arrange to a special uh, electric guitar uh, arrangement of give said the little stream and really <laughs> shred that baby. Uh, that's what you should do. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking about how the, what the chords would be. Okay. Whatever. I'm not doing that right now, Devin, though I am tempted because we did establish before we started recording that it's a bizarre news week and we it is it would be the perfect week. The perfect for week to waste time. A little electric guitar uh with give said the little song. Just be that. Lots of Did they have that song when you were a kid? Because it went away for a while. I mean, see, I'm halfway tempted. It's right there. All I have to do I know it is. That's why I all was I have to do is grab it. Um, you could grab it. Yes, yes. Give Set the Little Stream is an old standard. I think they just don't sing it now as much as they used to. No, I think they took it out of the children's thing what? for a while. And then I think President Monson said, put it back. What were you thinking? President Monson knows. Yeah, I think he was, you know, it was one of the great inspired acts of a prophet to put Give Said the Little Stream back into the hymn book I, or the children's hymn book or whatever you call it. I did a, uh, in a road show once, I did a lounge singer version of it. I don't remember, I forgot the entire context of why, but I was on stage in this like red blazer going, give said the little stream. Hey, give, oh, give, give, oh, give. I was doing something like that. That, that would be great. That would be great. I, I, that reminds me when I was in the road show, I think I was the devil. You have. 
<laughs> Fitting. Oh. Yeah, that's why I was thinking that was that it was a very apt it was a very apt prescient role for me to play the devil. So the the, the guitar is out, folks. I don't know if, Let's see. if you're listening to this, you didn't know that. And I'm now Where's my volume? Yeah. I have no volume. Maybe maybe it's not right. It sounds No, it should be, sounds good. It should be feeding it in and it's not, Devin. It is. It's feeding it in. It's working. You can hear it? Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, that's fun. Let's see here. It's in the key of D. Very easy. I could do it like Bob Dylan style. But Bob Dylan would be like, give, said the little stream. Give, oh, give. Give, said the little stream. Had to hurry down the hill. That's that's my version. That is that is brilliant. Thank you. That is brilliant. Uh, kudos. Everyone is big wondering we need why to insert, Earth add, here. Add the big applause, the ovation after when you're editing the 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 uh, podcast. I don't even need to do that. There you go. That's that's. I'm not sure that was a, a, as apropos as big applause, but we'll we'll live with the, taking me out to the ballpark. Oh, I'm in drop D. That's why it sounded bad. Sorry about that, everyone. It's my fault. Uh, I wasn't ready. Well, it was it was pretty darn good for impromptu. The Bob Dylan version of "Give Said the Little Stream" rocked. It absolutely rocked. And this will be the most popular podcast you've ever done on TWIM, just because people will they will listen just for the Bob Dylan take on Give Said the Little Stream. That's still out of tune. I'm going to spare you all that. Devin, I heard that you're writing a book. What's going on with that? Yeah, so I'm writing a book. Um, Is it about... So I am writing a book about superpowers, uh, the superpowers for good. Uh, I have been, you know, be, be, uh, in a prior life, I had a podcast, uh, did 1,200 episodes, uh, interviewed some amazing people. I, I uh, for hundreds of times, I asked guests, uh, what is your superpower? And I went through uh, hundreds of responses to find the best ones. And I'm excited. There was some really cool takes on that uh, from people. And so I'm, I'm writing a book about uh, superpowers. And it was remarkable um, how many different superpowers people talk about having. Um, it was also interesting how many people get that um, and some people don't. Yeah. Uh, okay. You know, the, the question. I'm game for this. I'm game for some superpowers. So you know. Anyway, that's one. That's my new project for the summer. Okay. So so if you're writing it now, books can take a long time. Do you have a publisher? Did you get an advance? Tell us everything. Is it well? I did not get an advance. I'm talking to a publisher later this week. Although I expect I will self-publish. Uh, I have self-published my other books. Uh, I I like it so much more. Should I get you in uh, touch with Soraya Wilson? And I mean, it's under the romance imprint. But <laughs> it might work. Yeah, uh, maybe not. But <laughs> we can talk afterwards. All later. right. Fair enough. Fair enough. Good times, everybody. Well, we've got a hot show this week. I'm glad Devin is here. Uh, thank you, by the way, for the other week when you were on with Ben McAdams. I thought that was a lot of fun to interview the company. That was great. Thoroughly Ben's enjoyed, a great guy. Thoroughly enjoyed that. And uh, I hope you folks did as well. I think I plugged it last week, too. So sorry for the uh, extra plugage right there. 
This week, though, hot news, everyone. Hot news. And where do we even begin? I'm going to start with the, the one of the least newsy items. They broke ground for the Deseret Peak Utah Temple. I only love this story because a temple that was not originally in Tuwila, but was named for Tuwila, is now actually in Tuwila, but not named for Tuwila. So <laughs> they we're all over the place on this one. If, if, uh, if you need a little bit of the refresher on Deseret Peak, it was the Tuwila Valley, Utah Temple. It was located in Ur- very rural Urda, which was kind of like equidistant between the main cities in the valley. Uh, and then after the church initially backed off because of public pressure from building a, a residential community around the temple, um, and we thought that was that, the church then announced they were just moving the temple completely and not even going to build it in Urda. And now they're the same design, same everything, but now they're going to build it there in, uh, I think it's Northwest Tuwila. And um, and that sounds great. It, they're going to do it. Elder Brooke P. Hales of the Quorum of the Seventy presided over a groundbreaking ceremony. Um Definitely not socially distanced. I mean, look at this. This was these the groundbreakings before. Like if you look at the Orem Temple groundbreaking, that was months ago in the thick of COVID, especially. A, just scattered seats, a couple people, masks galore. But in this case, looks like all bets are off out there in the Tooele Valley people, because as we yep. know, the CDC declared last week that the pandemic is over, so <laughs> there's nothing to worry about anymore. But that's that's all here and there. Everyone got to get together. People walked up to a line of dirt that was poured on top of what appears to be other dirt, and then turned it. I love our. Yes. I love. I know groundbreakings. We're not the only people that do symbolic groundbreakings in that sense. It's common around the world. I just wish they actually meant something. I would like if you actually had this little boy like legit starting to dig the foundation of the temple. Yeah. Yeah. I I was part of a groundbreaking, not for a temple, and it was exactly the same thing. Trucked in dirt for the purpose of the symbolic, uh, you know, groundbreaking. But yeah, it'd be nice if like you had to like dig through some hard pan. I I feel like it would. Desert. It would make us take it more seriously. Like, no, we've legitimately broken ground, people. Literally, the work is underway, effective immediately. One of the funniest ones to me was when they did the uh, Philadelphia Temple groundbreaking. If you don't know, the Philadelphia Temple is like in downtown Philadelphia. It's amazing. The church got the piece of land that it's on. It's absolutely remarkable that we got this place where the temple is there. Because it was just a parking lot, just a random urban parking lot area. And they bought the whole thing up. But when they broke ground on it, um, the parking lot was still there and they, they trucked in the soil and they're literally like standing in a parking lot with dirt on it. <laughs> ground. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the reason uh, it's symbolic <laughs> is it, that one took a while. They didn't, there was no action in the immediate aftermath of that to build the temple. It was like a year and a half or plus later that they started doing yeah. on it. But uh, anyway, so hooray, Deseret Peak Temple. Uh, yeah. Well, uh, Other temple stuff too down the line. Is, we'll is it all right if we jump to uh, the discussion of Carol McConkie? Oh, absolutely. I'd love to talk um, about Carol. Yeah. So, uh, Carol McConkie uh, is actually a friend, a, a legit friend. You know, we're not golfing buddies these days. Uh, she's been busy, she and her husband, with church service here and there and all around. But uh, um, we were in their ward for a time. Um, and, uh, so, you know, we attended a wedding or two and have stayed in touch a little bit with the McConkies. They're just phenomenal, great people, just exceptional, exceptional people. And, and, and Carol McConkie is 
you know, one of the smartest, uh, brightest, most well-educated, talented people I've ever known. You know, she in no way takes a backseat to her husband, who is super accomplished and, uh, you know, works at Curtin and McConkey, the firm that represents the church, the law firm, and uh, spent his career there. His father started the firm. What a, you know, they're just great people. And um, she has accepted a new interesting assignment uh, on, I want to get this right. She's serving on the, uh, she's the vice president of the Committee on the Status of Women, which is an NGO in Geneva. That's affiliated with the UN in Geneva, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a big deal. And what I love about this, too, is that uh, the, the group's agenda is gender equality uh, around the world. And so she is there advocating for the rights of women and girls all around the world. And I love that, that she is doing this on behalf of the church, uh, that she will be such a strong voice for these things, and also doing it in a way that respects and honors, I think, motherhood and the role of women as mothers, as well as equal partners in uh the economic life of countries and the government life of, of countries around the world. So it's, it's what a great voice to have it added to that discussion. I'm just thrilled to see that. And so does this mean they're going to be going to Geneva? Will she just be traveling to Geneva? Will she be based in Geneva? Now, maybe yeah, I am misreading clear. this, but I think uh, they are already in Geneva and serving in a role there as government affairs oh, missionaries yeah, yeah, right, right. for the church I see this, yes. uh, in in Geneva for the UN or at the UN. And this is just an additional okay, duty. That's, a, that's a cool gig. I want to be called to a mission to do government affairs work for the church, for the UN in Geneva. Yeah. I will hang out. Not as cool a place as you can I go. I will find the Large Hadron Collider and I will collide. <laughs> My son used to work there. Uh, at the Hadron Collider, yeah. not the UN. Yeah. Well, um, I think I'm just going to keep leaning on the things vaguely related to the temple. This one I love. I love this one. We we give the the Trib, the Tribune, we give it flack sometimes. I will always give it flack for its horrible website, but that's another issue entirely. But in <laughs> yeah. the latest from Mormon Land, their little podcast, which they had to stop saying this week in Mormon Land because a certain other podcast is like, stop getting too close to my IP or I'll come at you, Peggy. I'll come <laughs> right at you. That's why Jennifer Napier Pierce left, by the way. It was fear of Twim. Fear of you. So, yeah. Uh, anyway, this is great. So, people went over to the, uh, the the Salt Lake City Cemetery. And in the Salt Lake City Cemetery are buried many church leaders from our history, dating back many, many years. Okay. Um, I believe President Monson. I think President Monson is buried there. I know President Hinckley is for sure. Mm-hmm. Anyways, I think they both are. Many church leaders are buried there. And uh, Sleuths noticed this week a giant new headstone for one Russell Marion Nelson. Now, before you worry that um, something happened to President Nelson and the church decided not to tell us about it, that is not the case. Um, instead, <laughs> the headstone has his name. It says he was president of the church and it has his birth year, 1924. Then it has his first wife there and she passed away. And it does have Wendy there as well. That, that's they get, they get to share a headstone. That's all fun. And, but what's interesting about this is 
that the headstone itself has a small little plaque on it on the back that says this monument, monument, mind you, it is not a mere headstone. It is a monument was crafted of stone from the Salt Lake Temple 2020 renovation. So love it. So now do you think that is stone that was removed from the temple that used to be part of the temple or is it stone that was quarried for the temple and diverted uh to his to his uh my headstone. Okay, my best guess. If it's from the te- I'm assuming when they say it's from the Salt Lake 20 the temple renovation, they're not really adding much. I mean, they are building some new facilities in terms of the new entryway and all that. But the temple itself they're not really adding much to it. So I'm going to assume this came from the temple, which then yeah. makes us ask the question, where are they taking granite from the temple? If you remember on the, uh, what is that? Was that the north side of the temple, the north face? It used to bump out and have those extra ceiling rooms that they had on the temple. For a while, they added them, I think, in the renovation back in 92 or 93. Yeah, yeah. They've taken those off out with the new renovation. They're, they're gone. So now the Salt Lake Temple has equal sides on all, on the exterior. So offhand, I, I noticed that. Offhand, I would wonder if from the exterior walls, from removing those ceiling rooms right there, perhaps it yeah. came from that. Granite I, is amazing stone. If you've done any kitchen remodeling granite. and looked at natural stone, you know, <laughs> you, Devin. granite rocks. It just ah. it rocks. I I I believe I'm more of a quartz man myself. I want that real. <laughs> I know I really am. I, I if I if I'm between granite and quartz, I like quartz. It's harder. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, okay. But granite rocks. Thank you for that pun, Devin. I appreciate yeah. it. Um, you're, you're very well. And for letting us know about what other materials we can use in our home renovations. Maybe you want to pour yourself <laughs> a concrete countertop instead. Those yeah, so marble, good. marble sucks. You don't want marble for a countertop, for a floor no. maybe, but not for a countertop. No. And barely for a floor. Barely for a floor. It's pretty, but it's, you know, it's so easily damaged. It's just not how gra- granite is, is like the real deal. More importantly, marble, Devin, Devin, how do you feel about apron sinks? Uh, I don't have an opinion on apron. Are you sure? Sinks, okay, I'm not super. Yeah, I'm, sure. I'm not as in. I don't even know what an apron sink is. It, it's, <laughs> it's <laughs> Does it involve washing your hands? Is there water in it? When, okay, so it's one. If you have a sink, whether it's it's uh, whether it's uh, I'm playing on the term countersunk, whatever. However, you have the sink laid in a an apron sink has the front part of it where there's a front to the sink. So like the, there's a break in the granite or the quartz or whatever near the front of it and it comes up. It could either be stainless and modern or if you had more of a, a farmhouse style one. Um, I'll leave the rest of this to you to investigate. Yeah, yeah. Or, I'm going to have to ask my wife what my opinion is on this. You probably should. Uh, another quick temple news. The uh, We've got a rendering for the Salvador Brazil temple. Mostly excited about this because for a long time we predicted a temple in Salvador Brazil. And... Uh, That's all. It's going to be the 11th temple in Brazil in all likelihood when all is said and done. Uh, Salvador is the fourth largest city in Brazil. All in all, it'll keep the members from traveling about 11 hours to attend the temple in uh, Recife. 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 I know know in Brazil an R makes an H. That's all I got. I'm just going to call it Recife because that's what it should be. Anyway, great, beautiful temple. They're going to put it in. Everyone wins. Happy times. It's kind of actually a cool design. I think many of most of Brazil's temples have been kind of just the uh, anonymous contemporary style that we put in a lot of our temples, just pleasantly modern, right? Uh, except for the uh, Brasilia temple, which is awesome because it embraces all those Guji elements of the master plan capital city of Brasilia. That's kind of cool. So this is kind of fun because it's getting more into Portuguese colonial style. 
uh, which I think is fun to reflect. I like it when we build temples that do some of that. Longtime listeners know, I think the first time they did it was the Tijuana Temple in Mexico. And I thought it was just so cool. They were opting for that kind of style of architecture um, and not in a, a fake Caesar's Palace slash Skopje Macedonia kind of way, but in a classy way. So good times. Interesting. Yes. Interesting. Well, uh, I want to go back to President Nelson for just a minute. Uh, I uh, was fascinated by this bit of news that you picked up this week that uh, President Nelson gets quoted more mm. than past presidents during their tenure. And and I think- And specifically during like general conference remarks is what we're saying. Right, right. right. Yeah. yeah. by So basically by other church leaders. Other speakers. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so that is, a, it's a fascinating little- analysis. And I, I haven't dissected this like I really should to comment on it, but it is uh, it is a fascinating observation that he gets quoted more. Uh, why do you think that is, Jeff? Why does he get quoted more? I don't know. I don't know if it plays into the, the change we've been undertaking over the past few years to lean on you know conference talks more for our lessons. Like before, before we went to two-hour church, even before that, we'd reconfigured what we did during our Elders Quorum and Relief Society lessons, for example. We got rid of the old teachings of the presidents of the church and started doing at least, what, two conference talks a month out of the four lessons. I don't know if that's part of it, like the fact that we've kind of just been leaning more on the current word and leaving the previously written word from longer ago for our Sunday school lessons every other week. So maybe culturally there's, there's an element of that. Yeah. Um, it could just be because he's really shaken things up. And there's that. The, yeah. the, the rate of change under President Nelson has accelerated from any past president. I, I think, you know, President Kimball made a couple of changes. Um, one of them monumental. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, probably the, you know, the, the most number of significant memorable changes like two hour church, uh, uh, no more home teaching, reorganizing priesthood quorum structure. I mean, yeah, yeah. it's been all, and, you know, uh, substantially amending the November policy on, on gays, uh, in the church, uh, around what is and isn't apostasy and stuff that he I think I think amending that, so. is generous language there. I mean they straight up rescinded it really. <laughs> he kind of did. Yeah. yeah. So there's he, he's done a lot. And so maybe it's just the sheer volume of stuff that he's done that triggers him getting quoted a lot more, but you're right, we have shifted our dynamic to quoting to thinking about our current church leaders as being more relevant and that makes perfect sense. I mean, if we believe in a, a a prophet, and we do, then we ought to use him. Yeah. And, and so for a little bit more background on this, I encourage you guys to go to thisweekinmormons.com for the, the the post that accompanies this episode, and we'll link to this story here. It's Lofahad's Daughters. Um, the comparison was made between April 2021 and then 10 years ago to April 2011. So to be clear, this is not running the gamut of the every of the past 20 conferences, right? But the idea was that in April 2011, it was also President Monson's seventh general conference, and this was also President Nelson's seventh general conference because they, President Monson became prophet in like it was February or March, and then President Nelson was in January of, of the year when President Monson passed away. So we wanted to make that it's that comparison between those two specifically. What's happened across ten years? I would love to do a deep dive and do this for every single conference and look, really look for trends. But yeah, it's funny because he sh shows that uh, sources quoted. Um, compared to April 
so like in April, from April 2011 to 2021. Um, so currently in this, this past conference, fewer reference quotes from deity, but more for ancient prophets, far fewer for Latter-day prophets, fewer for Latter-day general authorities, more for current general authorities, fewer for other Mormons and fewer for like non-Mormons, like I don't know, C.S. Lewis, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But then a huge difference between for current profit. That's the one with the biggest upswing by far, uh, which as you said is very interesting. And the other main thing that jumps out at me is this, is he broke it down based on like speaker rank, so to speak, within the church. So essentially the, the prophet himself doesn't really reference himself. So that gets a zero. But then this goes up as far as the frequency of utterances, as you go essentially down in seniority. So you find the counselors do it a little bit. And then the quorum of the 12 speaker position get a lot. And then other man, other woman, women seem to mention the prophet at at the highest rate, which Mm -hmm. is also very intriguing. And then also the junior apostles do it more than the senior apostles. So I don't know if this is just Elder Gong being like, I'm in your corner. I got you. Just remember President Nelson, we've got your back. (laughs) Uh, yeah, I think it's just super interesting. I mean, there are reasons for everything, and there's also things that you can pick apart that don't mean anything at all in the end. But it's uh, yeah, it's cool, it, just random or whatever. But yeah, it is a, it is an interesting, very interesting analysis. So, yeah, yeah, it's worth it's worth uh, checking that out yeah. for, sure. for sure. All right, I'm going to go back to my fourth temple mention now, Devin. Oh, good. Please. If you're ready for this. You're the temporal guy. This is some original reporting from Corey Ward over at thisweekinmormons.com. It's a good long read by Corey. I highly encourage you to go and read into the details on this. So his headline is Prefabricated Modular Temples, How a New Method Could Accelerate Temple Construction. Basically, he thinks the church has some new ideas about how to construct temples. When you construct a temple, it's like any other building for the most part. I mean, it can vary a bit internationally, depending on, you know, building codes and the norms and stuff like that. But for the most part, you dig a pit, you pour a foundation, then you use some steel and you build the thing up and then you clad it in whatever it's cladding is going to be usually granite, but sometimes something else. And then, you know, then you work on the interior and all the typical stuff like most, like most strong buildings built to last. Right. Um, he thinks something new is afoot and it represents something the church has never really done before. Uh, one thing he references was the pushback during President Hinckley's time to build the so-called mini temples, right? And those went up pretty quickly. And part of the reason they did is, for one, most of them shared property with an existing church building. Like, So basically, they had to, permitting was easier. There was no new zoning, mm-hmm. nothing else to do. It's just like, we're building another yeah. religious building on our own property that's already zoned for this. Yeah, there goes the ball diamond. Yes, and then exactly. Uh, and then those temples were also built primarily out of wood, which is why we also had some problems with a number of them in the South. We've spoken about this a lot on the show in the past, but how there's a handful of these like in Raleigh and Memphis and elsewhere that have just quietly been rebuilt from the ground up out of steel because they had mold issues, um, porous marble problems for the cladding, all kinds of issues. Basically, they weren't, it's almost like the temples were designed to function well in Utah. And in once Utah, again, Utah. that crappy marble comes up. There you go. In the topic of conversation. If they would have clad it in quartz. All would be or granite, maybe. Um, <laughs> so, so, so that's the first time we kind of flirted with trying to figure yeah. out ways to more mass. They, they had a, com- a common template, easy to put up, cheaper materials, frankly, and we already had the land. But in this case, he sets the stage by referring to the Helena, Montana temple. And this show is brought to you by Taco Time, in case you were curious, everybody. Um, <laughs> so, which I don't know. 
I successfully lived in Utah for college and never once went to Taco Time. Very, I'm very proud of yeah. myself. So you might remember <laughs> when they announced 20 temples in conference, we were all like, okay, 20 temples, that's something. All right, how are they going to do this? We predicted many of them will be probably smaller based on the areas they might serve. And then less than three weeks after conference, they released plans for one of those temples, the Helena, Montana temple. They mentioned the square footage. They showed where it was going to be. This is all pretty quickly. Usually a temple gets announced in conference and then a year can go by before you get like renderings out and those sorts of things. So this this put us on notice a bit. And then uh, Bishop W. Christopher Waddell uh, of uh, spoke with LDS Living. He's in the He's the first counselor in the presiding bishopric. But he said this very interesting quote. He said, there are lots of things that are taking place with temple design that is reducing the time it takes to design temples and to build temples all over the world. For example, the Helena, Montana temple. It was just announced and it will probably be available for dedication in about 13 months. And that's because of some design features that are happening, which is an oddly odd little phrase there. Uh, temples usually take about three years from the time they break ground. Like that Tuola one they announced, it probably will be roughly three years until it's dedicated, the one we talked about a while ago. So for him to say, this one in Montana is going to be done in just over a year, that's something. And uh, I won't I won't spoil the entire article, but Corey does some serious investigating here and finds like the firm, firms that have helped the church build temples in the past because the church contracts with construction firms to build temples. There's some, some, you know, there's some firms that specialize in this and there's favorite ones and they bid like, I mean, I know it sounds ridiculous for temple construction, but they bid on temple projects like any other construction project because uh, it is business for the people who build it, for the firms that build it. But he found that some of these are flirting with modular construction. And one of these firms, Haskell, has even invested in another firm that specializes in it for building pre, basically prefabricated hospitals. And then on their own um, on their own website, they have a press release that's buried down where it says, right now, the future looks promising for Blocks and Haskell, with the firms teaming up for a, quote, large global church project to be delivered overseas. I mean... I'm not going to say that's our church, but I think all signs point to it being that. So the long story of this is just that um, these companies sp- are specializing in modular temples. That's a whole different way of building of building something. It's not what we said. What I said originally, right? Foundation, build the structure. It literally means you can be working on the foundational work, and at the same time, in a factory in a completely controlled environment that cuts out subcontractors, you are building entire rooms pieces of the temple with the walls, with the electrical run, with everything else. And then a crane, they ship all the pieces and the crane locks them into place and then workmen go in and finish everything and tidy it up and seal the joints and all those sorts of things. It's a very different approach, but it can also be a lot more efficient in many ways. And so uh, uh, Corey posits that perhaps this means that the Helena Montana temple will in all likelihood be embracing the, the this modular construction approach. And now this makes us wonder which other forthcoming temples might do the same. I apologize for the yeah. long explanation, Devin. But it, you had to summarize a very long but very interesting article. So I appreciate you doing that. It, it is a fascinating take, um, really interesting. And I, uh, I think this is the direction that all construction is taking. Yeah. It's obviously been going on in home construction for at least 40 years uh, and increasingly so. Uh, and now there's a whole boom. You know, you do a, a Google search for modular homes and you can find modular homes that uh, cost a million dollars. Right. Yeah. So this isn't just, you know, uh, 
your old mobile home deal. We're, we're talking about a whole new genre of high-end, upscale, fabulous, beautiful design. And of course, you mentioned hospitals and other industrialities, but yes, this is a very exciting, very accelerated way for uh, construction. And I think it also has some environmental and other prof, uh, other benefits. So yeah, this is a nice, exciting turn. Uh, and it could mean faster temples. So you wonder how we get through this backlog of temples, like 20 just announced on top of the other ones we're waiting on. That could be one way, especially if they're smaller, serving a smaller amount of saints. I think a lot of these bigger temples in Utah and elsewhere, I think those are still going to pop up yeah. in a typical construction fashion because they're, they're three-story buildings of 70,000 plus square feet, right? That's different, but uh, kind of cool. Yeah. I think it's very interesting they're exploring this. It'll be cool to see what happens in the future. And there's nothing, no reason that ultimately they can't build the big ones that way too. That's uh, true. Well, it's funny because, you know, the, I mean, the church is actually building fewer meeting houses. Um, that pace has slowed and it could be a great chance to divert some of those resources into more temple construction. And if we can do this at scale in a modular way, that's more cost-effective. You're cutting out subcontractors. You're, you're, it's less wasteful. It's an accelerated uh, time frame yeah. because you can do part components concurrently. It can mean a lot for building temples because then it takes that burden down. It takes the entire temple process from announcement to dedication from you know four years to one and a half if we want it. Yeah. And so very interesting. Well, let's I don't want to cut that off. Oh, you're good. You know, I do want to spend, put a little energy into this interesting uh, story that came out. It, it, it's in LDS Living because, uh, uh, but, 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 what's his name? Um, McKay Coppins. Keith, Keith Erickson. Keith Erickson uh, wrote a book. He is the, uh, what is he? Something in the church history department, right? Yeah. He's the director of the church history library. There you go. Yeah. There you go. So he, he's a big deal. We should listen to what he says. And he's written a new book about um, faith-promoting stories that, in effect, don't promote faith. Mm. Uh, and I think this is a kind of a fascinating discussion because the church has long, in our culture, we we just we just love we just love faith-promoting stories, and yet. So many of them are like all urban legends, right? That they, they, they start with my friend's friend experienced X, Y, Z. And we're inspired by that, whether that's the, the way they were protected by their garments or, or, or had some other uh, revelation or some uh, kind of thing. And um, we love sharing those stories because we, we think they prop up our faith, but, but he points out that there's a risk. And, and I think there really is. Uh, I think it's a profound insight to say, if we are relying on these undocumented, unprovable stories, we, we disable our critical thinking and, and we become vulnerable, uh, to uh, contextual lies. And I think about um, some of what I see in, in many communities, uh, but including especially communities of faith, where people get accustomed to taking things on faith, and then they begin to accept things like QAnon and conspiracy theories and, and like uh, conspiracy theories around <laughs> Like vaccinations are what on on my mind right now, and it's a super relevant topic. You know, here 
All the brethren have made a big deal about getting their COVID shots, and yet many, many faithful people in our church and other churches are chief among those who are choosing not to be vaccinated. And I think it it relates to this lack of critical thinking. And so I'm excited to have somebody step up and say, let's subject the stories we share in church that build our faith to the scrutiny that they deserve so that we are talking about specific stories that have been documented uh, and carefully uh, vetted so that we're not just preparing ourselves to believe whatever crap happens to resonate with us this week. And it's really all about confirmation bias. And we've seen that, like you said, exacerbated through social media. Like we just, we want to feel good and get the fuzzies and uh, we got to be careful. I'm reminded of uh, Paul H. Dunn, you know, the famous general authority who just kind of embellished a little bit in some of the things he said as part of promoting faith. And then it turned out, I mean, he just, he was just fabricating stories that sounded great, which you might have great intentions in doing that, but I don't, that's not what the Lord yeah. wants us to do. I mean, the Lord. And, and you know, in that case, and we don't want to belabor that, but in that case, many of the stories were not just faith promoting, they were also self aggrandizing. And he would try to demure, but he'd say, yes, I, you know, and I got a standing ovation, but they weren't giving me a standing ovation. They were giving this young Mormon kid who'd done this great thing, a standing ovation, and you can all be like that. Well, you know, it was very motivational, but it was uh, pure fiction. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, he tried to explain, well, it was a parable. It was a, a story. It was a tale. But, yeah, we, we're we just better off being better than that, subjecting ourselves to a little bit of scrutiny. So yeah. glad you I'm glad you surfaced this story because I can't wait to read that book. I know. It's a good area to look into, right? We need to talk to this person. Well, um, I'm going to go with my headline for this story, even though it's not the official headline. This, <laughs> this comes out of the church news, and I choose to believe the headline is, the Utah area is better than your area. That's the message I received from this as a non-Utahan. Uh, what the actual headline reads is, what a church area is and how the Utah area both blesses and benefits from a global church. I wish they could have just left it at how the Utah area benefits from a global church rather than the blood. I don't know. I just, I get all sensitive yeah. about like exporting Utah culture and with that, if that is church culture and if we are pro, if we're forcing that upon the saints globally and that's, it's a whole, you know, sociological study. But anyway, yeah. um, church news podcast interviewed uh, Elder Craig C. Christensen, who's the president of the Utah area, one of the church's 22 areas worldwide. The fair question is, what is a church area? That's good for us to know. Uh, if you aren't familiar with the way church structure works, I think that's fine. I think, you know, we talk about, of course, our wards, a, ge- a defined geographical area. And that stems from the old era, even of Joseph Smith, when the, ma- the cities they plan out had wards, like we use in the tr- typical sense of meaning a neighbor, a defined neighborhood. And that was your congregation. We've taken that to to this day, even if the area, the suburban area I live in is not exactly the, like a ward of a city, like in DC where they have like, you know, the, or like, you know, the famous, the lower ninth ward of New Orleans, for example. Um, but we call it a ward. Then you have a stake, a collection of wards. Then beyond that, it gets a bit goofy, right? Because pretty much it just goes to the 
area after that. And there are 22 areas in the church, right? If I'm not mistaken, um, there are six in North America and the rest of the globe is divided into 16 international areas. That number isn't defined in the scriptures or anything. That's just been, it's changed over the years. I mean, for example, there used to be a Europe and a Europe West, Europe Central, Europe East. Now there's a Europe and a Europe East. And I'm sure Africa split up more than it was years ago. It all depends on where the action is, right? Where the need is. So um, an area presidency uh, is comprised. Thank you, Church News. Not a, that's not an appropriate phrase. I would like to mind you. It is is composed or comprises is comprised as grammatically incorrect. Is comprised of a president and two counselors. All three are typically general authority seventies, so not area authorities. General authority seventies. Uh, although they do note that a local area seventy is included in both the Europe East and Middle East North Africa. Presidencies. So basically, the area presidency helps talk to stake leaders and area authorities. And if you don't remember what an area authority is, that was an advent of the late 90s when we got rid of regional authorities. And those are the other quorums of the 70, because while we have the first and second quorums, which are general authorities of the church, those are the ones who get to speak at conference. Area authorities, which is like the third through, I think now they're like the eighth quorum of the 70 or something Mm -hmm. like that, Mm -hmm. are area authorities. And it is a localized calling like you'd have anywhere else. They still have day jobs, but their job is to essentially be administrators and leaders, uh, more more or less to stake presidents at a level kind of between the area presidency, like the general authorities and the Mm -hmm. stake presidents, right? So in my case, I live in North America, Northeast, which comprises most of the Eastern seaboard. Um, and going up to Ohio and what have you. Obviously, that's a lot for them for the area presidency to look after. So, area authorities at a lower level that are based, in my case, like here in the in, in suburban Virginia outside of DC, can help out the handful of sticks there and this and that. So, it's good to know what an area is. They administer. They're they're administrated from church headquarters in Salt. Li- oh, sorry, the North American ones are based in Salt Lake City, but other ones are abroad. Um, you might even remember. Gosh, has it been like almost twenty years when in a, a I don't know if it was unprecedented, but an interesting move. Um, Elders Oaks and Holland of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles were sent to preside over areas of the church. In this case, it was, I believe, this was when uh, Elder Oaks went to the Philippines and Elder Holland went to Chile, if I'm not mistaken. I don't think I'm flipping those. That was kind of a big deal. So instead of having a a 70, they sent apostles to preside over these church areas. Um, Reasons for that. We could all speak a lot of, but it's probably most likely just the fact that the church has a lot of people on the rolls, but retention rates weren't great, especially in like Chile. So cool. That's the area. And then what a church area is and how the Utah area is wonderful and why it's so great. And this is like, oh, everyone learns from the Utah area. The Utah area just, just does it all. And we can all learn from what happens in Utah with the strength of the saints. And there's 2 million members of the church in Utah and Yada, yada, yada. Utah is the greatest freaking place in the United States. <laughs> and then, but then thankfully they say we can learn from a global church. And I, and yeah. I guess I am a bit of a globalist, but I would like to think that we can learn a lot from the global church and the appropriate ways. we Yes. Can and in all, in all sincerity, yes, they're saying Utah does have good things because when there is great strength in the church, there's a lot that we can analyze and learn from and, and export that in a good way as it's functional abroad to the saints. And like, there are a lot of places in the church where the church is strong, but not 
the dominant cultural yes. feature of the community in California and the DC area where you live. There are a lot of Latter-day Saints. There are strong wards and a closed temple. And so you can look at that for a model that's much more relevant to the rest of the world than a Salt Lake model for the rest of the world, because no one else outside of Utah and the Intermountain West lives in an area where the majority of people are LDS. And so I I think your community is a much better model. I I agree. Uh, There are some good examples here, though. Like, for example, the church at the higher level asked the Utah Area Relief Society sisters in in Utah, the Utah area, to produce uh, millions of medical-grade masks, for example. And this is a good example of how where there's density and even cultural hegemony of the Latter-day Saints, but you can mobilize that to do something good that you might not be able to do as easily as you could, whether it's in California or even, you know, even Arizona or even, you know, Idaho, maybe. At some point, mm-hmm. you have a critical mass that can pull off some things that might be more difficult elsewhere if it's strictly the Saints being asked to do it. So, yeah. anyway, good stuff there. We can all learn from Utah or something or other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, let me jump to another topic, if I may. Uh, and I'm embarrassed that I do not know or did not know Don Harwell, but he was uh, one of the really two key living leaders of the Genesis Group, founded in the early 70s for uh, and by members of the church who were uh, of African descent. Uh, And it was a small group at the time. And um, there were three leaders of the group, Mm -hmm. one of whom died more than 20 years ago. And so Darius Gray, whom I do know, or at least have met a time or two, and uh, Don Harwell have been leading the organization since the late 90s. So for more than 20 years since uh, the other fellow, let's see, what's his name? I I did not know him either, of course, but um, Ruffin Bridgeforth uh, was the one who... Uh, was the president in the in the nineties, the late nineties, when they reconstituted the group? I think they they began to appreciate that uh, there was still a need for a community of African American saints uh, in the late nineties. That they had not been uh, fully integrated, they had not been fully enfranchised, and and this gave them a, a place to feel at home to grow, to flourish. And uh, so anyway, that organization continues to exist and uh, and functioned kind of as a, almost like a branch uh, with, with a presidency serving, uh, I think as a calling. Um, I may misunderstand that, but I think it was a, a sanctioned calling in the, in the la- recent years. But anyway, uh, Don, Harwell uh, has passed away. And so uh, there is a beautiful um, and lengthy obituary in the uh, Tribune. I'm glad you caught and mentioned and surfaced that, Jeff, because it's well worth uh, uh, reading and understanding that. Uh, So thank you. I think it's, you're welcome. I, I think it's well worth it for all of us to get an understanding of the Genesis group in general. Uh, if you haven't heard of it, just w- Wikipedia is fine. I think it's perfect. Covers it very well. You should do that. It's, it's a good part of who we are as a people. Um, you flagged this one, Devin. The uh, the church is is heavily involved in the COVID nineteen effort in combating COVID nineteen around the world. But this this article by Tad Walsh over at the Deseret News 
uh, focuses primarily on India. And of course, if you've seen in the news, the COVID is just racking. It, it, India is just getting hit hard right now. It is, it's killing 4,000 people per day. Uh, it is, it is a tough time and many, many groups are active. This is nowhere to say that we are the most important people there helping to provide relief, but the church is anxiously involved. You know, the church has donated some money. Uh, it was a month or so ago, the $20 million to, I think two months ago, maybe to do va- to help fund vaccines. Um, the church is providing an additional $4.15 million to partner organizations throughout India, where its official name is the Indian Society of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. So I think like that's the official registered name of the church in India, which is interesting. Um, mm-hmm. And they interview in Area 70, who is Elder John Gutty, India Area 70 for the church. Unless they're saying, yeah, I don't think yeah, India doesn't have its own area. He's not part of the India area present. That's not a thing. I don't believe so. So... Um, and he's there on the ground coordinating the efforts and helping get the money to partners and different groups. Uh, I'm always thankful to see the church involved and the church also recognizing, I think Elder Gutty says something, he says down here, yeah, without our partners, we could not operate at the scale we are talking about because we don't function as like a full-blown NGO as the church. A lot of what we do with charitable work is finding partners that can that can mobilize and that have the infrastructure and the supply chain capability that we don't necessarily have, but we have financial resources and other resources that we can tap into and partner with them to provide relief uh, and aid where needed. And I think it's absolutely very, very needed uh, in somewhere in India. Now, is there anything else I missed from this one, Devin? Well, no, let me just comment though. I just think it's so incredibly important that the church is doing that. I'm so grateful that they are, you know, the, the U S government is starting to do a little bit of this, uh, but it's. I'm proud to see the church stepping up. I'm thrilled to see it, and uh, you know, I know there's always some temptation when we see the church doing things internationally to think, well, maybe they should spend that money right here in Salt Lake because there are poor people here, or sick people here, and and uh, I, I just think it's incredibly important that they be doing this stuff internationally, uh, especially in India right now where COVID is so incredibly devastating and has the potential to be so much worse. Um, It it really could just devastate uh, the country uh, and just knock them back a generation in terms of poverty and development if they don't get this under control. And the tools to get it under control are right there and just require uh, relatively modest amounts of money. And so the, the uh, relatively modest amount that the church is putting forward will, will really go a long way to toward uh, making a difference and, you know, vaccinating people and, and taming the spread of this horrible, horrible disease that kills so many people. You know, about almost 4 million people have been killed around the world by uh, COVID. We, we sometimes forget that. And we're not anywhere near done in the developing world, like in India, there are almost 1.2 billion people who have not been vaccinated, right? It's just going to take a Herculean effort to, to get this under control in, in India and the rest of the developing world. So kudos to the church. Yeah. And even the developed world, honestly. I mean, we've had some big news here in the States in the past week, and I'm I'm a little worried everyone's kind of jumping for joy, like, cool. Hey, they're a little bit... <laughs> We did it. Big high five. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, guys, it's, I mean, it's, it's good. I'm grateful for all forms of progress, but we're still only yeah. at about 37% total, like fully vaccinated across our entire population. That's, 
That's very good, but that is not enough for us to completely breathe the sigh of relief and go back for to sure. using the ball pit at McDonald's. Um, That's right. Yes, I will be staying out of the ball pit at McDonald's. That is a good point. Let me just comment briefly on something else I saw this week that kind of is in that same vein as the discussion about Genesis. But um, one of the painful realities uh, of church history is that um, Brigham Young and that first group of pioneers, that vanguard group of pioneers included uh, a group of African Americans who were, uh, at least one of whom was uh, a slave uh, and came to Utah as a slave. I remember uh, as a child being taught that he was a servant and rather specifically that he was not a slave. Um, That is kind of a revisionist history. In fact, he was a slave. And uh, these three are memorialized on a plaque at, uh, this is the place, uh, State Park on the monument there. And uh, that is appropriate. But um, a fellow, uh, let's see, um, who's the guy? Mowley Jr. Bonner is uh, a filmmaker here in Utah who is is kind of uh, advocating rather publicly and and beginning to do this in an organized way to get these three um, vanguard pioneers who came, at least one of whom, if uh, um, I, I guess they were all slaves, if I yeah. understand this correctly. Well, uh, Greenflake, Hark Lay, and Oscar Crosby Smith came to Utah as slaves in that first. And they were really the first of the group to come into the valley. They were sent ahead of this vanguard group to go start planting seeds and preparing the way for Brigham Young to come into the valley. Uh, and so they played a really important part and and are the nature of the way we have thought about, uh, especially in the past, about the contributions of slaves really being assigned to uh, their owners. Uh, it's time to rewrite some of that history and, and give credit where it's due. And so it's an interesting movement that's been launched to recognize their contribution. It is interesting. What I can't believe is that on the giant, the big statue of Brigham Young at Main Street Plaza in Salt Lake City actually mentions their name, but they're listed on there as colored servants, which is, I I mean, even if they weren't slaves, we might want to revisit how we're labeling that one. Right, Um, (laughs) right. But- uh, let's do a little up. Yeah, it could have been worse, but there is plenty of room for improvement. Yeah, I think this is cool, and this is a different way to um, go about advocating or petitioning for something, right? I think he's like obviously he's a filmmaker. He's making he's making a film about this story. That's a great way to raise public awareness of this and try to elevate the mm-hmm. profile uh, of these men. Um, and I think it's smart because it also it does it in a way that's engaging for the saints. It also does it in a way that does not come off as hostile towards church leadership, which is seldom the way to get what you want and maintain your good standing with the church. We could say you might you might be a martyr to a cause, and there might be some 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 progress at some point. But uh, I think this is good. I love that you found this, Devin. I think this is. Uh, I hope something yeah. comes of this as time goes on. Yeah, I think we we still have more. Um, 
growing to do with respect to our uh, kind of our our collective social awareness, our collective social acceptance, the our, our welcoming to the African American members in our community, uh, and it's it's hard. We talked earlier about uh, Utah, right? The Utah area. One of the huge deficits of the Utah area as a model for the world is its lack of cultural uh, sensitivity. And and we like to think because we all go abroad that we're very culturally sensitive, but uh, I was, I was six or seven years old when I saw my first African-American up close. Uh, Can you imagine? I mean, you know, it's so weird. I had, I mean, I had friends of all, yeah, it's just, Anyway, yeah, and, that, and I, can't, I, can't I was a sixth grader before I had a, a classmate who was an African American. Uh, there was one, I think, African American in my junior high school. One, uh, I mean, that's just not a way to develop a genuine cultural sensitivity that works. And to this day, I suffer from that lack of exposure. Uh, and you know, as much as I you know, think of myself as, as woke as can be, I still struggle with uh, racist attitudes and ideas that pop into my head just because I didn't have uh, a proper foundation as a kid. Uh, So yeah, I think Utah and members of the church here, we've got a long way to go, I think, before we really uh, come to terms with our history fully. And we got to work through it. And we've all got to work through it. I grew up in Orange County, California, right? Which is famous for a lot of things, some good, some bad, but like that's not <laughs> anywhere else. But one thing a lot of people in my native homeland might not know is it was actually a very popular hotbed for Klan activity. There were members of, there were local politicians, members of Congress who were Klansmen and things like that, which I didn't know much about as a kid. I don't think about that stuff. I mean, I grew up with plenty of, of racial diversity around me, but, uh, you know, everyone's got the, either the CD underbelly or some of the dark skeletons in the closet. And hopefully we can all work to a, a, yeah, a better yeah. thing. And part of it is demographics. I mean, in Utah, the bottom line is like, it's Utah's wider than other places in the country, but at the same time, that's not, always, it's not an excuse, right? Lack of exposure is not always an excuse. We need to be sensitive and, and thoughtful towards all of our fellow men and, yeah. and women. And I think, you know, the, the, the church is clearly trying uh, yeah. institutionally really hard to get better at this. There, uh, uh, there, there is a stumbling block that the church is, hasn't really dealt with fully. And that is whether an apology is due on the question of the, uh, the you know, the hundred year practice of banning uh, African-Americans from the priesthood and, and temple blessings and, um, I think it is a legitimate stumbling block that people in the African-American community in and out of the church have trouble with. The, yeah. the church won't apologize for that practice. I hope one day the church will do that. But well, There we go. So anyway, there's we got lots of work to do, and I think the church wants us to do it. Thank you, Devin. Everyone, thank you for listening. Appreciate you being here this week. If you liked what you heard, leave us a review, whether on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you really want to support us on Patreon, where you can pledge two bucks a month, what a great way to keep Twim going. What a great way to give the blessing of Twim to your family. I don't have a tote, uh, a commemorative tote to offer you or uh, a plate 
or any number of typical fundraiser type items. I just have my gratitude and the promise that I can keep doing this show and I can justify it to my wife who <laughs> increasingly has to do stuff while I'm doing this show to keep the family. So, uh, yeah. but anyway, thanks all of you for listening. Really appreciate it. Wonderful of all of you to take the time to join us this week. We hope you'll follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, all those good places. You can watch videos of this podcast and others on our YouTube page. We don't, uh, we don't tout that one very often, but it is there. And if you want to see, if you want to like see me holding my guitar, for example, YouTube, there you go. Or if you want to see me supping, sick, sipping on my taco time cup. Yeah. And everyone, go to go to ta- if you go to taco time and you go to the store and you say you have the promo code twim, <laughs> see what they give you off. <laughs> Just see what they give you. <laughs> a weird look. You can get a weird look for free. By going to Taco Time and using the promo code TWIM. I think you'll get a weird look at Taco Time no matter what you do because. (laughs) Anyway, everyone, thanks for being here. Devin, pleasure to have you, my friend. (laughs) Thank you. It's great to be with you, Jeff. Thanks for having me. Yes, sir. Devin Thorpe, former host of uh, Your Mark on the World with Devin Thorpe, congressional candidate for Utah's third district, author. He does it all. So we're happy to have him here. And we thank all of you again for being here this week. I'm Jeff Openshaw, your host. And uh, until then, be well, be holy and be happy. Bye-bye.